The Low Post is brought to you by Goodyear, helping you discover the road ahead. Goodyear, more driven. Hey, everyone. Uh, we recorded the Tim McMahon section of this podcast before news broke that Rick Carlisle had informed the team he would not be returning as head coach of the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, the pod is all still relevant, and uh, and everything Tim says there is still relevant, but just FYI on the timing of that. Thanks for listening. And now, The Low Post. Welcome to... The Low Post Podcast, where we are absolutely high on life because the last 36 hours in the NBA, I don't even know what the hell just happened. Uh, Kevin Durant played one of the greatest games ever, and the Bucks collapsed. That was interesting. Chris Paul went into the health, health and safety protocols right as the Suns were uh, during the conference finals. Something always happens to Chris Paul. Does it have to be this? Does it have to be now? Kawhi Leonard has an ACL injury. Stan Van Gundy, the, everyone mutually parted ways. Half the league <laughs> mutually parted ways. It was all mutual. Everything's mutual. I wish all my breakups with girls were mutual partings of the ways over the years. It would have been a lot less awkward. Stan Van Gundy mutualed and Scott Brooks mutualed in Washington. I'm probably forgetting another mutual that may not have happened. And then, and then... The Philadelphia 76ers blew it's not even they blew a lead. They they took a big old poop right on Ben Franklin's head at center court and and they're now down 3 to 2. And, and ben you Simmons, Kyrie unlucky was disrespectful. There was no poop in there. I, Glenn Davis, Glenn Davis said that Lucky got Kyrie back for stepping on. I forgot about Glenn Davis and Lucky, and then the and then the Clippers without Kawhi Leonard. And boy, this is this is I, I didn't think they had that in them without Kawhi Leonard because their identity is so based on their stars, and their best star was gone. And Paul George showed up, Reggie Jackson showed up, Terrence Mann showed up, and the Clippers go into Utah and beat the Jazz, and, and, and I'm not going to lie, I was up till 1 in the morning Eastern time watching that game, and I was drinking in the fourth quarter because it was just that kind of day, and I was like, I don't even know what the hell is happening anymore. Let's start out with Dallas because we didn't even mention the Dallas drama. That's Tim McMahon. The mutual, that's the mutual you forgot. The- I forgot <laughs> a mutual. mutual. Tim McMahon, how are you? Oh, man, I'm doing all right. Hey, listen. For the first time in a decade, we are talking Dallas Mavericks during the second round of the playoffs. So, uh, you know, got to be some good news, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Some great news. Uh, Donnie Nelson was mutualed in Dallas. Uh, he's no longer the GM after 24 years of, of working for the Mavericks organization. There was apparently a power struggle. We've all heard murmurs of this all mm. year long between uh, Bob Volgaris, the former professional gambler, now something at the Dallas Mavericks, and Donnie Nelson. The Athletic exploded that into the open with a piece this week. We can talk about that issue. Um, and so that all of that is going on in in the backdrop of Luka Doncic now in Slovenia is eligible for the mega extension. And so let's just start there. Tim McMahon, does any of this actually affect that? Luka is signing this extension, right? That's like that's that's going to happen. Yeah, I I, I do not think any of this impacts what Luca signs this summer, right? Because you're not turning down a $201 million deal that you can't get elsewhere. He's not leaving dozens of millions of dollars on the table. Um, what this has done is, is all, I mean, it's, it's basically kind of put into the spotlight what really you knew, and that is Luca is not going to be Dirk. You're not getting two decades of blind loyalty. You better 
handle your business, put him in a position to compete for championships, or a few years down the line, you know, things could could get messy with him. Uh, you know, and by messy, I mean James Harden in Houston this year, sort of messy. And so, uh, the the extension five years, two hundred one million dollars. Go ahead and pencil in the player option because if Donovan Mitchell's getting it, I believe Tatum's getting it. Like, you know, the Mavericks have no leg to stand on there. So he's going to have one year left of his rookie deal, and then halfway through the four guaranteed years on that on that uh, supermax extension. If the Mavericks have not handled their business, then, you know, who knows what could happen. But this has been an absolute mess. There's really no nice way to put it. Um, and there's a lot of messiness left for the Mavericks to, to figure out how to clean up and how to deal with. You're more well-connected with the Mavericks than I am. Is it fair to say there has already been some trepidation within the organization about Luca, it Luca not being a lifer, about making sure Luca is happy, about fearing that Luca might leave sooner than they would hope. Yeah, but you know, you know how this is. I, I think it's probably fair to say, not that I'm real close to the situation, I think it's fair to say there's that same sort of trepidation in New Orleans with Zion, or you know, we go ahead and pick your, you know, you have to with these guys, you have to handle your business and put them in a position to compete or there's going to be uh, trepidation. Um, I, you know, and I would say that there are some unique relationship dynamics with Luca. And, and to me, here's where, if you get into the concerns about Donnie, Donnie Nelson, essentially what happened is Cuban lost faith in him, lost trust in him. You know, things got messy and, and Cuban reacted by firing Donnie. That that's basically what happened here. And this is not going to be about, you know, Bob Volgares, the former professional gambler, you know, turn Mavs analytics whiz, you know, shadow GM, whatever you want to call him. He's not going to get he's not going to be the president of basketball operations. He's not going to be around the team because Luca doesn't want him around the team. So that doesn't make sense. Now he might continue in that role. That that's to be determined. But Donnie Nelson and, and Lucas said it at the uh, you know prearranged press conference he had in Slovenia today, where he's practicing with the Slovenian national team. You know, he said it was tough on him. He's known Donnie since he was a kid. I mean, Donnie's been scouting Luca since he was like fourteen. Uh, you know, and, and and he liked Donnie, but as Lucas said, but I don't make the decisions around there. Well. Luca's going to be able to make decisions that he wants to make. Um, I think where, where Donnie was really important, uh, just in terms of the, of the Luca dynamic, is not just the, the relationship he had with Luca, but the relationship that he had with Bill Duffy, with, with Luca's agent. And look, they're, the Mavericks, well before Luca, had had you know they, they have burned some bridges with Duffy. Bill Duffy was Steve Nash's agent. Cuban had a multi-thousand word blog post blasting Bill Duffy after Steve Nash's departure to the Suns way back when. Bill Duffy represented Darren Collison, represents Rajon Rondo. Rick Carlisle had disaster or those guys had disastrous, brief, messy, contentious stints playing for Rick Carlisle. Donnie was the guy who, you know, who had those. And, and 
Bill Duffy's ultimately going to do what's in the best interest of his client. But I, what my point in saying all this is I don't think that these guys are going to get uh, benefit of the doubt. Uh, you know, give, I don't think they've earned benefit of the doubt with him. So, you know, all that's a concern. And then the other, look, they haven't won a playoff series in 10 years. Their roster building since they drafted Luca, you know, has not been good. Um, and so, yeah, should there be trepidation? Should there be trepidation? Yeah, absolutely. Let's, let's step back for a second. You said it's been a mess. It's been a mess for a while. What's been a mess? So Donnie Nelson finally ended up on the losing side of a power struggle. And there have been a lot of time. Donnie's, Donnie's decision-making power influence. Because look, here's the thing you have to understand about the Mavericks. Jerry Jones is the Dallas Cowboys general manager. Mark Cuban has that same role for the Mavericks. He doesn't have the official title, but Mark Cuban makes all the basketball decisions. It just comes down to whose advice is he taking at the time. He took Donnie's advice uh, with Luca. Actually, I think I think Bob Volgaris was also strongly pushing for Luca, so that was a consensus decision. But you know, you go back to uh, you know there was a time when Dan Fagan. A lot of people consider Dan Fagan, you know, the late great former player agent. Uh, when they considered him to be somewhat of a shadow general manager for the Mavericks. Dwight, Dwight's agent at the time, I believe, right? Wasn't Dwight, Dwight and, and Dwight was one of many, many, yes, Dwight, many star-free agents who did not come to the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, also DeAndre's, and he had delivered DeAndre until DeAndre uh, changed his decision and fired Dan Fagan. Also was Chandler Parsons' uh, agent. That's right. Ch Chandler Parsons, you know, and, and I wrote the, a big story on on. On you know after the Parsons Cuban bromance breakup, but Chandler Parsons had major major uh, decision making influence for a while. You know and these uh, are all names that are important, and we're going to talk about later in terms of how did the Mavs get to this point where there seems to be dissatisfaction with the roster around Luca. All of these characters you just mentioned, Rondo Parsons, this and that, they're all yeah. still relevant now. You know, and and look, remember Gerson Rosas's ninety day. "Quote unquote." I trial forgot. Period. I forgot until I just. I earlier this morning I went back and looked at every Dallas Mavericks transaction for the last eight years just to refresh my memory on some trades and stuff. And I just there it is. Gerson Rosas hardest. I was like, wow. I forgot right. about that one. So just to refresh people's memory on that, Gerson Rosas now running the uh, the Timberwolves basketball operations was an assistant GM in Houston. The Mavericks hired him to be GM. He was reporting to Donnie Nelson, basically. He wanted more say than Donnie was willing to give up. Power struggle ensued. After 90 days, one of those mutuals, mutual parting of ways, and Cuban explained to the media that they hired Gerson Roses as the general manager on a trial period. <laughs> uh, like a 90-day, like, like he was a mattress or something. I don't think the Mavs got, the, got their money back. But <laughs> So, look. Messiness in the mass front office is not exactly what you would uh, what you would consider to be some sort of recent phenomenon. Talk to me about Bob Volgaris and the shadow GM because I had heard about, but just couldn't nail down the incident that the Athletic reported about Lucas snapping at him at a Warriors game. And I've certainly heard murmurs of this power struggle, but like you said, this is a, this is like a semi annual thing with the Mavericks, the who has Cubans yeah. here rumor mill. Um, 
I do not buy the idea that he is dictating to Rick Carlisle, who Rick Carlisle, one of the greatest coaches in the history of the NBA, should play. I do buy the idea that he is suggesting yes. who Rick Carlisle should play. By the way, almost every team has people that are doing that. One, some people are listened to and some people aren't. But but talk to me about, you know, and, and Bob has, Bob Bulgaris has been sort of credited or blamed, depending on who you talk to, for the pick of Josh Green over mm-hmm. Sadiq Bey, mm-hmm. uh, which, by the way, I kind of liked Josh Green in spot minutes this year. I could see what the Mavs were going for in that well, pick. And I, and I would which, say if Rick is if Rick is just taking, you know, if, if the lineups are being dictated to him, the rotations are being dictated to him, Josh Green would have played more minutes. <laughs> I, I, do, I do think that's safe to that's, say. That's fair. So, 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 it, so like, di- did he, did, did Bob Volgaris consolidate power in not, cons- it sounds like, it sounds like a little finger or something. Did he, did <laughs> yeah. he, did he gain Mark Cuban's ear? And if yes. so, like, how other than by being smart, I guess? Well, and, and that's the thing, you know, Cuban respects the guy's information. And that, that's Cuban thinks this guy knows basketball, does really good homework, prov- provides insightful, unique data. And, you know, we can go kind of move by move. Sometimes it gets fuzzy. Is this, you know, was this Bob? Is this Donnie? You know, is there a, was there a consensus on this one? He's had his hits. He's had his misses. DeLon Wright, that's a pretty big miss when, when you're a team that's got major cap space and DeLon Wright is kind of your headliner. Uh, coming out of a summer, um, you know, he was pushing for them to try to move up for Halliburton this year. That would have been a huge home run. They weren't able to to uh, to pull it off. Um, but Cuban respects the guy's information, and that's why he's gained uh, decision making influence within the Mavericks. Donnie Nelson quickly came to look at Bob Volgaris as an adversary. Um, you know, things like holding staff meetings and not inviting him, you know, that started happening uh, pretty early on. You know, the other thing is Bob Volgares, I'm just going to be blunt, is incredibly arrogant. He rubs people the wrong way. Like, if you think Donnie Nelson was the only source in the athletic story or was even a source, I don't know if he was a source. I'm just going to put it to you like this. If you're looking for people who are going to, you know, talk behind Bob Volgaris' back with the Mavericks organization, <laughs> throw a dart, you'll hit one. <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a dirty business sometimes. Um, um, and and he, doesn't have, he does not have people skills, right? There's an arrogance about him. And then I think perception became a problem with him, and, and Donnie was concerned about that, and I think that's why Donnie came to look at him as, you know, the perception that Bob Volgaris had the power became a problem. And it's it's been an issue for Rick because I do know that players a lot of times will blame Volgaris for rotation decisions, lineup decisions, those kind of things that they don't like. And, you know, uh, Windhorse passed this one on to me early in the season. Uh, another team executive, and I was able to confirm it, another team executive, this is back when the Mavericks didn't have fans in the stands, so if you're sitting down on the floor, you can hear everything. It was a timeout. Luca, as tends to happen, was was pissed, and he yells at Rick, "Who's in charge? You or Bob?" Wow! <laughs> yells at wow. it in front, of, obviously in front of all the Mavericks players, in front of all the assistants. You know, anybody down on the on the floor could hear it. And then look, the Luca Rick relationship—it's uh, dicey. 
Well, that's nice. that's been the other murmuring. So so let me let me just step back for a second. Um, I have not heard the thing about who the the outburst that Winhurst told you about about who controls the team. You or Rick? I have not had people tell me that Bob Volgaris is arrogant. I just looking at his podcast appearances and stuff. He's definitely not shy about expressing his opinions. I think that's part of the reason that people gravitated to him at first. But I, so it's not surprising mm-hmm. to me that he's going to rub people the wrong way. And by the way, it's not the only people, not the only person in the NBA who, because <laughs> right. he might, he might, um, he might not operate with what is the sort of typical sheen of politeness that mm-hmm. most people, the passive aggressive politeness, whatever rubs people the wrong way. Uh, so that, that, that's, that's not that surprising to me. Um, so let's talk about Luca and Rick. Cause that's been the other yep. sort of murmuring thing all season. What what's going on there? Because my my thing when I hear all this is I tell people, what what exactly does Luca want in a coach? Because he can do whatever he wants. He runs nine hundred pick and rolls every game. He takes as many step back threes as he wants. The entire offense, and he is the the alpha and omega of their team. I don't there. It's literally not possible for a coach to give him any more freedom or control of the offense. Yeah, and and Rick to his credit, realized this pretty early on in, in, in Luca's rookie year, realized that you know controlling Luca was not in his best interest, was not in the team's best interest. Empowering Luca was. And so he made that shift. Um, you know, based on what I know, it is a it's a clash in personality. It's a it's a clash in, you know, just not a strong uh, personal relationship. Um, and, and look, Rick Carlisle, I think we can agree is one of the best X's and O's coaches in the league. Rick Carlisle in terms of relationship management, uh, he can be quite abrasive. I would say, I I think that's safe to say. And, you know, I, it's not even, I don't know that it's even necessarily abrasiveness towards Luca, although there was certainly some of that early on, but I, you know, I'll just give you an example. When Luka Doncic came into the league, Sala Mejri, somebody I'm sure most fans have forgotten about. Sala Mejri was on the Mavericks roster. Big Sala. Sala. Sala the ball, I called him. The Mej. Yeah, I like it. The Mej is Dirk. Sala, Sala once said, what is this bala? What, is, what does that mean? <laughs> but the, the, the Mej. Uh, and he was a guy who was one of Luca's best friends because they had played together in Real Madrid. Uh, he was on the Real Madrid team when Luca came up as you know a kid who barely had a mustache. Um, really, really close. And honestly, Sala felt like he was Rick Carlisle's just you know whipping boy. Like, and, and I think when you, when you look at this whole situation, things like that matter, you know, the way Rick treats other people, uh, I think has created some resentment, uh, with, with Luca and Luca, you know, I, I gave you the example of who's in charge, you or Bob. I mean, anybody who, who watches the Mavericks, they can, you can rattle off the top of your head numerous times where Luca has showed up Rick in the middle of the games, whether it's you know yelling at him uh, while he's on the floor about uh, not calling a timeout in Milwaukee, or yelling at him in the middle of a playoff series, you know, motioning at him in the middle of a of a playoff game about calling a timeout, or you know gets pulled from the game in foul trouble, and I think it was game one against the Clippers, and stands on the sideline for two minutes just 
shouting at Rick. Um, you know, I mean, there, there's a, a long list of those things. The other part of this is Luca is a 22 year old, you know, hot tempered guy and call it competitive, call it, you know, immature, call it some kind of a, a blend of that. Uh, his, you know, he, he runs hot and, you know, he might run hot the rest of his career. Um, that that's part of this whole thing as well, by the way, Rick runs hot too. And so I, I, I just think there's some natural clashes there, but Cuban on the record with me, the day they got eliminated said, Rick Carlisle will return as the Mavericks coach. Uh, it was not the strongest vote of confidence that I'd ever seen. You know, he basically said, let me tell you my philosophy on coaching. You don't fire, you don't make a change just to make a change unless you have somebody who thinks much, much, much better you kind of keep moving forward with what you have. There's no question. I think, I think Rick makes it to the season opener, but Rick is on the hot seat moving forward. And if Luke ultimately decides he's had enough, I don't see how that is going to continue. Wow. That is, that is explosive stuff, Tim. I mean, this is Rick Carlisle. I understand they haven't won a playoff series in 10 years. I don't, I don't recall, you know, you can quibble with a move here or there for any coach, right? Like, but I'm yeah. just a dope, I'm just a dope watching on TV or in the stands. Rick Carlisle was a great, was a good, good, was an NBA player for a long time. It has been a coach for ages. He knows more about basketball than I'll ever know by, yeah. Ex, yeah. by an exponential amount and definitely knows more than Dallas Twitter egg suggesting right. rotations <laughs> in the playoffs. The grass is not always greener when you fire a coach. It's just not like and you, that, you can, that was I, that was Cuban's take. That's and exactly I, can, I I say all the time, you know, the best thing the Heat ever did was not give in to whatever pressure they felt from their star players to move on from Spolstra. And because you do that, you risk becoming the Kings, where you can't even keep track of how many coaches the owner is paying, and maybe you don't even make coaching changes because you don't want to pay yet another coach to right. do nothing on your dime. Um, but let's talk about the roster because there's a lot of angst in Dallas about the roster just not being good enough. And particularly you mentioned the summer of 2019 when for what feels like the seventh time since they won the championship, they had max cap space and came away with DeLon Wright, Seth Curry, probably re-signed Kleba that summer. I can't remember all the deals. Uh, Kleba, Kleba and uh, Dorian Finney-Smith, both of which, by the way, were, were very good value contracts. Uh, Boban. Um, but yeah, yeah. So, so, so the angst essentially comes down to this roster around Luca isn't good enough. Boy, does this front office suck. They've done a bad job. Look at all these players. They're, these players are just nice role players. And really the, the players are just nice role players, right? But they're good players. Like mm -hmm. Finney Smith's a good player. Kleba is a good player. Brunson, second round pick, good player. Um, I, I think the issue is, um, the, the gap between the, the, the it's like player spots two, three, and four just aren't good enough, right? They've done a good job building out the back end of the roster. It's players two, three, and four that the cap space is not yielded enough, enough, um, enough things. And in the Seth Curry, Josh Richardson trade, a trade that in full, Oof. in, in, in full yeah. admission, I liked for both teams. I thought it was going to help both teams. I thought it, I thought, um, 
it addressed a need the Mavericks had mm -hmm. for another wing defender and that playing next to Luka, Josh Richardson would speed up his three-point shot release a little bit, which is something he's talked about. He'd attack off the dribble board. None of those things happened. He became a complete offensive liability in the playoffs. Seth Curry is apparently now the lead ball handler for the Philadelphia 76ers and shooting the crap out of it. Um, so that didn't work. But really, like, this just comes down to spots two, three, and four not quite being good mm -hmm. enough. Spot two this year was Tim Hardaway Jr., who's a really good player. He's probably a fourth or fifth starter on a great team. Spot two is supposed to be Kristaps Porzingis, who had an okay regular season before, you know, sort yeah. of falling apart in the playoffs. And if you want to talk about what's wrong with the roster, it's that section of the roster that mm -hmm. isn't good enough. And really, it's that Porzingis wasn't good enough. If Porzingis were a real number two, we would not be having yeah. this angst. Um, and, and when you look at, you know, the Hawks are sort of the irresistible comparison because they have Trey Young and the Mavs have Luka Doncic. The Hawks got one bang-up free agent in Bogdan Bogdanovich. Would fit amazing yeah. in Dallas. The other Bogdanovich in Utah could have been a free agent target for them too. Not sure he changes their life, but he's a very good player. And then they actually got stuff. They, they made a killer trade for Capella, who in the playoffs yep. has been a better player than Porzingis, right? Oh, yeah. Uh, and, and then they got stuff in the draft other than Trey Young. Kevin Herter's become a player. DeAndre Hunter was a player. Then they dot the roster here and there. They just got more stuff. And the Mavs, their number two guy hasn't been close to a number two guy. And just all of the years of just big old nothing in the draft trading out of the lottery, trading down, trading out of the draft, trading a pick for Rondo, trading a pick for Odom, trading the picks for Porzingis, which was, again, that, that was a fine trade. I don't mind that. All of that stuff, using the cap space on Wes Matthews and Chandler Parsons that just became negative value. You couldn't do anything with it. You couldn't flip that. All of that, tra trading, throwing Jay Crowder into the Rondo deal. Mm -hmm. All of it just starts to catch up to you, and you haven't turned enough stuff into better stuff. And that's where we are. It's those roster spots two to four. That that's really the issue. I mean, and it's a big issue. I don't know how they solve it other than Porzingis has got to be better. That's step one. Well, and and look, this offseason, really, it's about how do they deal with the Porzingis problem. And the problem is you need him to either be the second star or the ticket to a second star. And it's hard seeing either of those things. And I don't, I don't think that trade was necessarily a mistake. And... You know what they gave up. Dennis Smith obviously was as another know, draft miss. I forgot about that's that. A, but that's a least, that's know. a huge draft miss, especially given that Donovan Mitchell won a few picks after. Um, but you know, and then it was expired. DeAndre, which they had to unload, and he, he was an expiring. West was an expiring, and then the two picks. Whatever you could argue, even Hardaway's justified the two picks. Whatever. It's not the trade, and I think when they had a chance to get a talent of Porzingis's caliber, you had to take that swing, especially the way the age is matched up with Luca, so on and so forth. The con Porzingis's contracts, the problem, the fact that they didn't, you know, if, if Joel Embiid signed a contract with major injury protection with the Philadelphia 76ers, how did the Mavericks not get any injury protection on Porzingis when he hadn't played a second for them? He hadn't played a year and a half coming off the knee injury. That, that's problematic, but still, you're still at the same spot. You don't have the number two guy on the roster. And then you've got the Porzingis-Luca dynamic, which is awkward at best. Um, you know, just plain and simple, Porzingis is not at all enjoying playing for Dallas. 
Uh, I'll put it to you like this. I, you know, it's not like he's going to storm in there and demand a trade. You know, he understands he's not in that kind of position, but I don't think his heart would be broken <laughs> if the Mavericks traded him this summer. But the problem is, what's a trade that, you know, who's going to give value back for Porzingis, given that he's got problems with both knees, his mobility was drastically diminished this year, and he's owed $101 million over the next three years on his deal. Uh, yeah, and the other thing I'll say about Porzingis, I do feel like the Clippers was just the absolute worst case matchup for him in the Glad first round. That up. Yeah, because like the Porzingis Luca pick and roll, whether they're going out to dinner or not, the Porzingis Luca pick and roll was highly productive when they were both on the floor this season. They had an elite offense again. Those guys, as far as high-volume pick-and-roll partnerships, put up the best numbers in the league, according to all the second-spectrum uh, data uh, in terms of points per possession. But you, the, the Clippers are going to go small. They're going to switch everything. You know, Bob Volgaris' data, as well as everybody's eyeballs, tells you that, okay, they're small. Let's feed Porzingis in a post is a really bad idea. So Porzingis, he was KP Tucker is what I call him. You know, he's like P.J. Tucker in Houston, except for he didn't help you on the defensive end. He's going to go stand in the corner, spot up, and get a few three-point shots uh, every game. So that was that was a specifically terrible matchup that really kind of uh, exasperated the issue with Porzingis being, you know, a, maybe you could say a distant second, even a, a third guy behind Hardaway. And it's a situation where Porzingis is frustrated. Uh, he... To his credit, you know, in his exit interview, he talked about he needs to be able to expand his skill set, his game, figure out ways he can help. But he's frustrated of, of you know, basically being an afterthought. Um, and that matchup really, you know, put him in distant afterthought status. You know, I, I was reading somewhere, looking back at the Mavs 2019 free agency, other alternatives that Mavs fans wanted. I think it was MavsMoneyBall.com, which is a really good blog. They do good work there. They were talking about Terrence Ross and, and Jeremy Lamb, and like those things yeah. are not those don't that doesn't matter. Those are nice players. It does. It's not changing your life. It's it's about Porzingis, and the, it, those are those yeah. are fourth or fifth guys, just like what they have now. Um, the Clippers were a nightmare matchup for Porzingis for all the reasons that you suggest. Denver with a traditional center, Phoenix with a traditional center, Utah with a traditional center, would have been better matchups for him. Right. The issue the issue is that for that to be the case. He has to play center. If he's not playing center, those matchups are just going to be switched too. The likelier you are, in the, the further you get in the playoffs, the likelier you are to meet an opponent with defenders who can switch between right. Doncic and Porzingis, right? Even if they have to rearrange the matchups elsewhere. And that becomes exponentially easier when the center can guard Dwight Powell or Boban Marjanovic, or even Maxi Kleba, if that's uncomfortable. Like, he has to play the five in order for that pick-and-pop uh, game to sing, uh, almost no matter the matchup. That said, you're absolutely right. The Clippers were the perfect team to just sort of expose him and leave him, you know, on the side of the floor. And then even, like, he, KP did play center the vast majority of his time this year. Maxi, you know, and Maxi had a whole ton of, of health issues from COVID to Achilles to. They I mean, they may win that series if Maxi is is healthy. Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, they look. 
it's not like the Mavericks are a bad team. They took the Clippers to seven games with Kawhi playing out of his mind, you know, the last five of them. Um, but KP did play center the vast majority, since he's been in Dallas, he's been the center the vast majority of the time. So the problem is KP, after coming back off the meniscus surgery, was horrendous. Couldn't defend the five. That's that's what they discovered. We can't. Yeah. We can't. This guy's not going to protect the rim for us. No, and you know, obviously, they had to go zone in that series, and you called it. I thought you were crazy when you said it when we did the podcast, but you called it. Throw Boban in there and play zone because he, he, he just and and as great. I like in from February fifth on. That's really when the Mavericks started playing well. They were five games under February fifth, and then they finished strong. From February 5th on, they averaged something like 122 points per 100 possessions with KP and Luka on the floor. That is, that's historically dominant. They gave up 120. <laughs> that's problematic. Even the, not Kings are championship. Like, even the Kings are like, that seems bad. Um, <laughs> we, the, speaking of the Kings, remember Harrison Barnes was on the Mavericks? You know what? And they listen, salary dumped him to get that hey, 2019 cap space. Harrison Barnes is a good player. And so I ask you this. Would they have been better off, you know, with the DeLon Wright thing, if you want to trace it back, you know, they gave up second-round picks, blah, blah, blah. Essentially, they got uh, J.J. Redick and Street Clothes and Nicole O'Malley out of that, if you want to trace all the moves, right? And then Josh Richardson. Would they be better off with Harrison Barnes or that collection of, of guys? The Sorry. Harrison Barnes thing, and, and, and the Harrison Barnes thing, not only, I think, can you – in hindsight, say, hey, you'd have been better with Harrison Barnes, who was a he's a great locker room guy. He's a great community dude. Is he a star? No, but he's a he's a good player, right? He's he's a he's a very good player. You I think you can say basketball wise, you would have been better off doing that. And the other thing is when you talk about Mavs messes, the way that trade went down, like these things hurt you when you trade a guy and the news breaks in the middle of the game and he's pulled and he's over there sitting on the bench and it's awkward as hell like players see those kind of things those those things do not help your reputation throughout the league they don't help your reputation with players they don't help your reputation with agents you know we can sit here and have Harrison Barnes wanderlust. Ultimately, he's not a number two guy either. And it's funny. Rarely, they are almost the victim of Luka being so good so fast. Like, rarely. Like, yeah. usually the opposite happens. Usually a team gets a good 22-year-old player, and we end up criticizing them for going too too fast too soon, for flying too close to the sun before that player was ready. Luka's created the opposite situation where he's ready, and the Mavs are like, oh, God, we got we to gotta start getting stuff now. Um, even like the, the, the Hawks threaded the needle really nicely with, with young and other than Gallinari sort of youngish veterans around Trey Young. And again, the Herder, yeah. Collins, Hunter, they got stuff out of the draft that the Mavs just didn't get. But the, but the bottom line is you can talk about Harrison Barnes, this and that. Yeah. The second, the second best guy for, for them to get where they need to go and for Luca to be happy, the second best guy has just got to be way better. And Porzingis was really good in the regular season. He was really good last season. He was really good offensively. Uh, defensively, okay. you're right. Yeah. yeah. Um, he was really good in the bubble. Um, and and in even last season, now two seasons ago, I guess, you know, after the Mavericks really were after struggling – when Porzingis played without Luca, those minutes became a source of strength for them up to and into the bubble. 
now it's like the minutes without Luca are so precarious you can barely watch. Well, and and so if you want if you want to be optimistic, you can say, well, you know, Porzingis, it was a, I mean, it was a real massive challenge for him physically coming back off of the knee surgery uh, in a compressed season. You know, all those things, right? And uh, obviously, the mobility was drastically diminished. If you want to be optimistic, it is, hey, Kristaps Porzingis actually is going into an offseason healthy. Uh, he's, he's going to be able to, you know, work on his body all offseason, work on his game all offseason. If he can get back to moving the way he did, you know, uh, the first year, the first year Porzingis was actually a pretty significant plus defensively, his first year playing for the Mavericks. The first year, it looked like they've got it figured out. Like, yeah, they got to improve here or there. They got it, but like, it looked like this could be. Because Luca was so good, yeah. it looked like okay, they've got the the bones of something really interesting here. And and there was there was still questions about whether Porzingis was that could be that number two guy. But at least the the you know kind of the scouts executives around the league I talked to there were there was mixed opinion on that. Whereas at this point, I don't I don't know anybody who's who's firmly saying hey yeah Porzingis is definitely uh, capable of being a number two guy. On a uh, on a championship contending team, and you know, and then the, what really complicates it is just the fact that Porzingis and Luca do not like each other. And sometimes, you know, Cuban always wants to throw out Dirk and Jed as an example of a relationship that evolved and and those sorts of things. You know, perhaps that happens, but you know, it's a there. There's a lot of those kind of issues at all different levels of the Mavericks. And it's a it's a franchise that um, hasn't I don't think has been cautious and caring enough about the human element. And you know if you if you have a, a data guy, an analytics guy who has significant decision making power, that's going to be a blind spot. Um, you know I, I would say I think Daryl some of Daryl Morey's moves in Houston are, are an example of that. Uh, you know something as something as simple as I always go back to it. Not having JJ Bray as the fifteenth man on the roster was a was a major mistake. Their hope was, oh, Bobon can play that role. Bobon can kind of be the intermediary between Luca and the coach and staff, and Luca and KP and and those kind of things. Bobon is a fun guy. Luca loves him. He's makes great material that you can put on the jumbotron. He's never going to tell somebody, you know, hey, this is the way it's got to be. They, they didn't have that. They hoped J.J. Redick could bring some of that. It's hard to come in midway through the season and, and suddenly emerge as a locker room leader. So they missed all that as well. Well, it is also like you, you do want to remind yourself, like the Mavs are a good team almost every year. Like, and the Luka trade is going to be fine. Like, like it's obviously going to turn out fine. He's, a, he's an all-time superstar level player. He's going to be an all-time superstar level player. The Mavericks are not the Kings or the Timberwolves who are in the lottery every year. You have to give them credit for that. But it sounds like there's a lot going on there you brought the information today you, this is we're going to be having you back because this isn't going away no it, this there's a lot of uh of things the Mavericks got to figure out a lot of things they have to clean up but you know what if Kawhi doesn't go for 45 in game six we're probably talking about how the Mavs match up against the Jazz going into a uh, game six of another series that ain't the way it went down Donnie Nelson's gone and uh things are hairy down here Tim McMahon, always enjoy your work. You can also listen to him on the Hoop Collective podcast where he referees fights between Brian Whithorst and Tim Bontemps. Mr. McMahon, thank you, sir. Appreciate you, brother. Two guys drove to work. 
Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Spring is the best time to add new challenges to your training just in time for summer and warmer days. It's also the best time of the year to take a new look at your fitness routine, dial it up a notch, and continue powering on Peloton's varying class lengths were designed with your personalized training in mind. Whether you'd like to add a 10-minute course session at the end of your strength class or take a 60-minute power zone ride to increase your endurance, Peloton classes help you focus on your needs and goals. They are also made to challenge you with a variety of classes like boot camps, boxing, okay? full body strength, marathon training, all created to grow your skills or push you to improve in what you already excel in. Peloton's expert coaches and nonstop vibes, hashtag vibes, will push you to new levels of strength and endurance, keeping you on your toes while giving you the professional coaching you need. With a wide variety of options, whether you prefer to run outdoors, row, or ride at home, or strength train at the gym, Peloton has something for you. Get your head start on summer with Peloton at onepeloton.com. That's onepeloton.com. All right, let's welcome in for our next topic, the worst topic in the NBA, which is injuries. Uh, let's let, let's welcome in Baxter Holmes from ESPN, who wrote with Kevin Pelton a story uh, last week that caused a little bit of a ruckus inside Olympic Tower, if anyone's in Olympic Tower in the NBA, about injuries being up this season. Mr. Holmes, how are you? Doing well, man. Thank you. And when there is an injury, there is one Twitter account that I go to first before anything else. And that's in street clothes, Mr. Jeff Stotts, injury expert, because I know you'll have the goods on the history of this injury, what the recovery time usually is, the specifics of it. Somebody of the goods will have words that I don't quite understand, but you are good at making them into English. Everybody, Shiv, what's your, is your Twitter, what's your Twitter handle? In street clothes. Everybody needs to follow in street clothes. Jeff Stotts, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate I mean, Zach, I've got to credit you. I mean, you were a big influence on me starting the site. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but we had a conversation back in 2012 at a Knicks-Mavericks game. My wife surprised me with a trip to New York for my 30th birthday to see the Mavs at Madison Square Garden. And you and I had a conversation. I was like kicking around this idea. It's like I've been building this database. And you said, do it, man, do it. I think that would be awesome. And so you were the last push I needed to really dive into. So I appreciate it and happy, happy to repay the favor. Hey man, mm -hmm. the, the the information is is um is just invaluable. You do a great job, um, and I really mean that. When there is an injury, I like. And sometimes I'm like, he hasn't. The injury news broke ten minutes ago. Where's the tweet? I need the information now. <laughs> Poor guy is like digging through the archives. Like, tweet it. Come on, I need it. Um, so let's just do so. So you know, the NBA releases. The, so the Elias Sports Bureau releases this stat that you guys, uh, that, that you and Kevin Pelton mentioned about. The 27 All-Stars this season missed 370 of a possible 1,944 games, 19%, the highest percentage in season in NBA history. And so that comes out and it makes waves. And then LeBron talks yesterday about how I told you so. I told you that the condensed season and the compressed schedule was going to cause a wave of injuries. And of course, that's a five-alarm fire. That's beyond a five-alarm fire. That's like the building is burning down at the NBA for LeBron to do that. And so the NBA comes out and says, well, actually, in your story and in response to LeBron, Baxter, um, the NBA comes out and says, well, actually, injuries are, are not up. Injuries are at the level they were last season, basically. Injuries in the first round, I've heard, are about at the level they were last season. Um, 
injuries to star players are about at the level they were last season. Absences of more than five games are about at the level they were last season. What we're really seeing is an increase in conservative load management where guys are missing one game here, one game there, and that's inflating the missed games um, statistic. The idea of whether injuries are up or down or flat is not all that interesting to me, but it's clearly interesting to the NBA. So, Jeff, you've got the database. I'll start with you. Are injuries up? Well, uh, let me uh, let me tell you. I've asked that question every single year since I launched the site. Every year, everybody wants to know are injuries up, and the the short answer is yes, a little bit, uh, according to my my data. Uh, because we're trying to compare seasons that don't have the same number of games, what I like to do is look at the number of games lost per the number of games played. So that allows us to compare last year's bubble, this year's 72-game season, even the lockout-shortened season, things that have impacted the schedule, and look at how much, how many games are actually lost. And they are elevated for this year, but it's not significantly raised compared to years past. Um, that being said, it was a 72-game schedule. So the total probably would have been higher or on, on pace to be one of the highest given given recent seasons and, and how the injuries have trended up really since 2017-2018. And Baxter, I think the league would look at that all-star stat from Elias and say, well, that's cherry-picked, right? I mean, that's this season's specific all-stars. There are other star players who are not included in that database. What is your response to the NBA's response to your story? Um, I would say that Data, you know, people can look at data any which way. And there are, I mean, we talked about this before with analytics. You can find numbers to kind of support any narrative. But I also think it's not necessarily fair uh, in some ways to talk about like, okay, there were this many games this season and this many games that season. It's the same. We don't know why people are complaining or whatever, because the numbers don't necessarily take into account what is an extraordinary season playing outside a bubble during a pandemic. The numbers don't take into account the COVID protocols, the cumulative amount of stress, fatigue, sleep loss, you know, that everybody's been feeling. I kind of look at this in a, in a chronological way. Season shuts down in March, and then it's like, okay, we're going to have to get back up and going for the bubble, but all these practice facilities are shut down. Their, their gyms are shut down. Playgrounds have their the hoops and nets taken off of them. Everybody is in shelter at home. We have, you know, teams are sending workout equipment. How can we get guys in game shape? This was a concern like last year before the bubble. You know, the bubble happens, but it's like, okay, you know, there's a lot of games happening. There is no uh, travel going on, so they could start rest and recovery. Then, obviously, short off season uh, for a lot of folks coming into December. And there were concerns about the ramp up. There were concerns about the teams that had been off for however many months that never went into the bubble. The con so those concerns were all there. Um, I remember talking to a lot of team health officials and execs around the league and wrote about it back in November, and they were voicing that stuff. The, the concerns and fears picked up even more um, at, towards the second half of the season when teams were playing, making up a lot of games in the second half uh, or for games that were postponed due to COVID in the first half. And then we wanted to, and I worked with Jeff on this and Kevin, get a sense of like, okay, what do the numbers kind of look like? And again, it's hard even looking at some of the numbers because, you know, it's, oh, it's the most since this season or it's the most since the lockout. Well, during the lockout, the world wasn't going through a global pandemic where we compare it to, you know, any other season. And it, this is just, it's been an extraordinary season in a lot of ways. I think that nobody, including in the league office, would deny that 
the amount of stress, anxiety, sleep loss, and banged up, banged upness as I know that's not a word, that everyone is feeling is at a rate that we probably can't really compare to. So I know that we can talk about numbers a lot, but I think that, that understanding the cumulative toll from, from the shutdown, the ramp up to the bubble, the bubble, the, 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 the turnaround to this season, you know, the protocols, everything else, you know, is very, very real. And I think that this will probably hold true the short off or the, the off season to next season, to the end of next, uh, to the end of next season. And then we'll look back in a few years and see, you know, what the ultimate cost was. Yeah. We got another shortened off season coming around the corner. Um, and, and I think that's starting to dawn on people. Like everyone's excited for the NBA to get back to its, its regular calendar, but that involves mm-hmm. another accelerated off season. And by the way, with tons of guys playing international basketball, People have already gone overseas to start practicing with their teams. Someone is yeah. going to go from game six or seven of the NBA finals right to Tokyo to start playing in the Olympics. And, and that's that stuff takes yeah, that's a lot of basketball. My conversations with people um, around the league, team executives and health officials, they have talked about like, look, when when this season ends, a lot of people, because they feel so burnt out from everything, are going to want to get as far away from basketball as they can. And you know, that, this is going to be tough because they may feel burnout physically, mentally, emotionally, everything. And then we're going to have to ask them to get ready in a short amount of time for the next season when basketball maybe is one of the last things they want to do. And look, we know everybody in this room on this pod and everywhere else knows that the driving factor for a lot of this is money and, and having a season. But it was it was well understood, I think, by every party involved that having a season under these circumstances with all the factors that I mentioned – was likely going to exact a physical toll. And a lot of people talked about that before the season, like we're doing this to have a season, to keep people employed, to make up money, to have jobs and whatnot. But the the, the point that you just mentioned about this coming off season and the turnaround, that's the biggest thing in my conversations with people around the league. They said like, you know, this isn't going to end just when this season ends. Like we are gonna carry this toll into next season. We are gonna be load managing guys all through next season. Um, and, you know, trying to, to repair whatever injuries have already happened that maybe haven't had a chance to heal. And again, five years from now, we'll look back on this, this span of time and it, there'll be big question marks about, you know, if certain guys blew out, you know, had whatever injuries and whatnot. And it was it just the, the cumulative effect of so much basketball, anxiety, sleep loss, all this other stuff of playing through, during a pandemic. So, so you bring up two important points. Number one, the players agreed to this. You know, they they can say whatever they want now. Their union agreed to everything that happened. And there's been this conception that, is it a misconception? I guess it is, that this is just sort of unilaterally imposed on players, that they're helpless victims of, of the NBA's dictatorial fiat. And that just isn't true. That said, I don't think in a case like this, it's a fight between equals. It might be like a 65-35. Like the players are just a more disparate body with more disparate interests. They're harder to reach in the offseason. They're harder to get on the same page. I don't think everyone really, I don't think they, I, I just don't think it's apples to apples. But, but they did have a say. The second thing is the money. And you can just say it's greed, it's greed, it's greed. And of course, like part of it is greed. People like money. They just want money. This is a business. People, Rich people want to get richer. But you, you did face a thing where it's like, do we want to have a business for two years? Like, do we want to have a business? Are we prepared to lose half our business? Are we prepared for mass unemployment across 
media arena workers all that like that those are it's not just fat i mean it is fat cat owners trying to stay fat but the trickle down effects of like this was a fundamental do we want the nba to continue to exist at least over this two to three year window as we have known it or do we want something much less than that and what are the economic ramifications of that going to be for everyone Mm-hmm. I, I in, even in my talks with some GMs, you know, throughout the season, who were, you know, watching, uh, it seems like you know, guy after guy on their team suffer. It could be soft tissue injuries or whatever, and they would, you know, be commiserating with their team health officials or other their their peers across the league. At the end of the conversations, they would say, you know what, like this this sucks, and we are all running down, and we're losing guys left and right, and. There's so many blowouts. The, the quality of play is terrible. And we're having to put backups into starting roles. And they're having to play uh, minute loads that they're not used to. And then they're getting hurt. And it's just, you know, the, night after night, like, the play is, is bad. But we kind of – we signed up for this. And, and, like, we get it. Like, you know, this is to keep the trains running on time. It's to keep the lights on. It's to keep people employed and whatnot. I do think the interesting thing when it comes to health, though – and I'd like, look, the rubber meets the road when it's like, you know, is this the right thing to do? But there's also, you know, with respect to like health and wellness and whatnot. And then there's also the science or sorry, the business aspect of it. Um, but the, the, they would, they would kind of say like, yeah, I, I still do worry. Like I, I understand why we're doing this and why we all signed up for it. But man, I really do wonder like, you know, how we'll look at this down the road. You know, and maybe it's it'll be one of those things where it's like, yeah, we, you know, we we lost a lot of guys, or maybe some players had shortened careers because they suffered, you know, X amount of injuries, or I mean, who knows what could happen during this span? And it's hard to even tie it back to certain things necessarily. But yeah, there there's an acknowledgement from virtually everyone I've talked to across the board, like we're doing this for financial reasons, and it really is very hard in a lot of ways, and we may, you know, regret certain aspects of it down the road, but we know why we're doing this right now, as hard as it may be. Well, and for me, with with tracking the injury data and everything that I've been following for so long, I have learned over time, over the decade that I've been doing this, is the more variables you introduce, just like any other, any sci- basic science experiment, the trickier things get. And we've got a ton of new variables thrown at us, given the pandemic. And it's Baxter hit it on the head with the, we had a some teams that were on break for four months. We had rookies that hadn't played in over a year because their season was suspended. We had guys that had 71 day off seasons or, you know, so we had tons of variables going forward. And and for me, that's really what we need to focus on is we're looking at these rates. They might not be that drastically different than last year, but how can we improve those? How we should, our focus should be trying to pull those rates down. And so what are we going to do? What are the concessions that are we were going to implement moving forward that are going to help everybody that's going to help the players, the, the staffs, the training staffs, the medical staffs, the in-house arena, those kinds of things, because we've got to get everybody back on the beats. You know, that, that's what I took away from LeBron's tweet was, you know, that he's an individual who knows his body better than any athlete, probably in the history of professional sports. He knows the beats of the off season. He knows what he needs to do to be ramped up. Other players know those same beats. They know they need to, to really prep teams know that, you know, a lot of the teams use what we call the acute to chronic workload ratio to, to balance the load. That's where the term load management came from to balance the stressors placed on these, on these, on these players. And that was all thrown out the window. The moment we had to go be shut down and isolated and you could 
Some some couldn't even get at facilities. They couldn't get access to a court. I mean, this isn't just an NBA thing either. You look at injuries are up in Major League Baseball this year. Football had some issues coming in. Um, so so it's it's not just isolated the NBA. It was a cumulative effect of this pandemic, of everybody. I mean, my movement patterns changed. I don't know about y'all, but <laughs> you know, the last eighteen months for me, everybody's movement patterns have changed. So we've got to get us back to the beats by making concessions to build build in things that control some of those variables that we've discussed. That was one of the NBA's arguments that I found at the very least slightly disingenuous was saying, well, if you look at the last 20 months, players have actually had more downtime than they would normally have over a 20-month period. And my reaction to that was the hiatus was not downtime. The hiatus yeah. was mental and emotional trauma and fear, physical isolation. And I don't care what equipment the team sent and, <laughs> and how much they zoomed, had Zoom training sessions. The lack of physical... They just it, it's not the same as practices and games and shoot arounds. And to go from that to let's ramp up in the bubble is just a different thing. And I think the, the NBA and the statement to you, Baxter, I think framed it as sort of like, well, look at the hiatus is time off. They had more time off. To me, that was, like I said, at, at the very least, slightly disingenuous. I, I want to touch on this real quick because it, it what you just said reminded me of um, a story I'd worked on where uh, it, it was kind of focused in part on the Italian NBA players and the point when they were here watching their country basically be the epicenter of the deadly pandemic. And they were, you know, if you talk about the, I remember talking to them, the amount of calls and stress and anxiety that they felt as they were concerned about their loved ones and what they were going through, however long way. Meanwhile, they're sheltered at home. They can't really do much. So yeah, the stress and anxiety that everyone felt during that time was extraordinary and basketball i'm sure for a lot of people during that period for a lot of you know during this last year is probably one of the you know the, the last things on their mind i would also note that even when the the it's like okay facilities are kind of open and, and it, you know varied state to state depending on what restrictions were there were still various um uh restrictions and protocols that teams had to follow it's like okay you can have so many guys on the court for a workout for a certain amount of time, or you, it has to be like individual workouts or this or that. And I heard plenty from team health officials and executives around the league, like, look, we have guys in the gym, but we're not able to really do stuff that is going to prepare them to play on the court and, and for like a game-like environment. It's very limited, the amount of things we can do. So yes, the, 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 your comment about like, oh, they've, it, it's, they've had X amount of time off, that time is not created equal. You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's just not, and it doesn't take into account so many of these other variables um, that Jeff has pointed out. It's just, it's, and this is why I think it's hard to even compare like, oh, well, the schedule's kind of the same or it's, you know, whatever the lockout year was worse. Again, the lockout year, how do you compare it to a year that, that, that this past year has been through? I just don't see it. Well, so Jeff, you just nailed it with the last thing you said, which is I believe the league when they say injuries are essentially flat. I think... The data is the data. I think maybe you can frame it one way or another. I believe that data. I, I, I just do. I think, it's, I think it's essentially accurate. The bottom line is it's high. Whether it's, whether it's higher than last season by 2%, 1%, negative 1%, whatever, it's, it's high. And I bet when they factor in the second round of the playoffs, like the first round, sure, it was flat. The second round, second round is going to be high. Like this is an abnormally large amount of guys 
that are injured. And you can tell me, it, and yes, you can't connect A to B, compressed schedule injuries in the playoffs. It's not a clean line. Kawhi Leonard was load managed the whole year. Do we know for sure that his injury is because of the compressed schedule? Donovan Mitchell, it was a fluky ankle sprain thing. You know, uh, 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 Kyrie Irving landed on Giannis's foot. All of this stuff, like there's no through line. The bottom line is this. It's high and we should be trying to make it lower. We shouldn't be like, yay, um, it's flat. It's like about on par with other really high data points. That's not good. And, and the other bottom line is the structure of the season did not help. How much it hurt is impossible to know. I'm a dope. I have no idea how this stuff works. Jeff, you use words I don't even understand. I, you start telling you anything above ligament. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. But I can tell you this. It didn't help. And, and, it, and it probably did hurt a little bit. How much, I don't know. And it doesn't mean you can connect a line from the schedule to every injury that's happened, but but it 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 for sure was a was not ideal. It didn't help. That's for sure. Is that fair, Jeff? Yeah, I think one of the things Baxter and I did when we were working on his piece that he did was we looked at soft tissue rates, so injuries that potentially can be linked to things like fatigue, um, and we noticed that the trend shows the number of soft tissue injuries, at least for sure, the games lost increased as the season went along. So you had more. Uh, in, increase towards that last quarter of the season. And so, you know, that that's, again, like you said, you can't, not every soft tissue injury is the same. You have a guy like Kyrie roll his ankle. He came down on someone's foot that that's hard to predict, but some of these, you know, non-contact hamstring strains that we've seen some other soft tissue injuries, those potentially could be linked to fatigue and things like that. So uh, you've got to look for trends in the data. And that that's where, like I said, now that we're seeing this data, what can we use? What, how can we change these trends to go the other way? Because to be honest with you, in, in 2013, the 2014 season, the number of games lost crossed 5,000 for the first time that I, in my total. And then for the next three seasons, it went down. It went down each season. And then we had this massive spike in 2017, 2018. And that season started off ridiculously poorly. That was the year Hayward broke his, broke, dislocated and broke his ankle on opening night. Jeremy Lin ruptured his patellar tendon on opening night. That was the ramification, the, the lingering recovery for Zach Levine and his ACL, Porzingis tore his ACL that year, uh, DeMarcus Cousins tore his Achilles that year, Kawhi was dealing with his final year in San Antonio and all his quadricep tendon issues. So you've had kind of this huge, massive spike, and it's gone down since then, but not, it's kind of fluctuated. So uh, again, the focus still needs to be what, what can we see in these trends to improve and what concessions can we start making? Zach, I wanted to build on something you just said and that, and that Jeff said uh, with respect to like, you know, injuries in the playoffs. One thing that I've been thinking about and kind of kept in the back of my head uh, builds off a conversation I had with a veteran team official who I was asking just like, you know, how are you guys doing? Whatnot? And he said, well, you know, the second half of the season, the pace of games has picked up a lot because we've been trying to make up games that were postponed the first half due to COVID um, or COVID related things. We've been playing a lot more. It's been a long season, the protocols, like all these other things. We're pretty exhausted by this point, but the games are picking up. He said, the thing I'm concerned about is us and other teams are right now kind of running on fumes because of the pace of games and all these other factors. And then we're going to come into the playoffs. He's like, so this is the, the basically the, the point of the year where the games are most intense, the energy is the highest, and we're kind of running on fumes at this point. We, and we have various players that are banged up. He, and he, he said, I'm worried 
because it's been a very unusual season, but we're coming off a stretch that was especially taxing. And then we're going to vault right into the playoffs. And I, you know, he's just like this, we are really going to have to keep an eye on our guys. And this is true for throughout the league, but he said, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we saw even more injuries because the games are more intense and everything else. So again, I know that as Zach, as you pointed out, it's hard to draw one-to-one things, you know, and especially in a year when there's so many, especially over the last year, there's so many variables and so many things that are cumulative that are built up over time. But I've been thinking about that as I've been watching the playoffs. Again, I don't know, you know, it's hard to draw one-to-one things, but I think a lot of people felt burnout, tired, banged up, out, you know, on fumes heading into this stretch. And then it was always going to be intense because the playoffs always are. Jeff, um, let's talk about the things that didn't happen this year because a lot of the focus on why this year has been stressful is everything that Baxter just said, stuff that did happen. Lots of games, lots of tests in the middle of the night or when you get to a hotel, lots of sleepless nights, all that stuff. The thing that didn't happen is practice. And we tend to think of part of the whole load management thing is, well, teams don't practice anymore. Teams don't have shoot around, blah, blah. But I keep hearing from team sports science people, practice is really valuable because that's where you build up your, your, your what endurance, your body, so that it is prepared for what becomes a very stressful load in competitive games. And when you just ax practice, I, yeah, the players can do stuff at home. They're, it's not like these guys are out of shape. They're sitting in great shape. But uh, to what, do, like, does that make any sense? Like people, th- these people are telling me that practice is, the lack of practice may be, uh, I don't know if it's contributing injuries, but it, again, it's, it's not helping. Explain that a little bit if I, it makes any sense. Well, I'm going to start by avoiding an Allen Iverson practice joke, <laughs> completely rant going off there. But um, we are talking about practice. So the big thing for me there is your, I mentioned earlier the Q to chronic workload ratio. So acute is what's happened basically in the last week in a lot of cases. And then the chronic workload is your rolling average over the last four weeks, let's just say. And so you don't want spikes either way. Right. So if you don't have practice and you're not able to load your body in this particular way and all you're doing is games, you're going to have these drastic spikes because we know games are more intense. You know, nothing can simulate a game in practice as much as you want it to. So you're talking about these potential spikes. The other thing is just general time. Right. So instead of being in the facilities doing preventative care, whether that's myofascial release, rolling out, you know, um, massage, ice, heat, whatever, the, whatever modality the, tr- the training staff is using, players were going to get tested or they were doing this. So th- you take away from the preventative care, which is integral in avoiding injuries. And then now, okay, so now an injury occurs. So the training staff is now dealing with the maintenance of that injured star as well as the rehab for that injured star. So um, my colleague, Will Carroll, who does a lot of what I do, but for baseball, um, he coined the, the death spiral phenomenon and that's basically where once multiple injuries occur the training staff starts to to struggle from a standpoint of less time is given to preventative care and more time is given to rehabilitation and management of of current injuries and so that lends itself to additional injuries and suddenly you're just overtaxed with with all these different injuries so uh, you know that's where back to those variables we talked about come into play and again taking practice out of that attributes to that Last question, and I'll let you guys go. Uh, Jeff, this is a stupid one for you. Um, <laughs> Kawhi Leonard is out with a knee injury. Obviously, we don't, we can't discuss the specifics of it because we don't know the specifics, the specifics of it. But 
um, it was reported, I think the Athletic had at first, that there are fears of an ACL injury. So here's my dumb question. What is an ACL sprain? Because we don't, again, we don't know what the injury is, but what I've heard and read and been told is if it's not a tear, which is we know what an ACL tear is, it's bad. You're out for a long time. It's, it's a sprain. It could be a sprain. It could be a sprain. And there's swelling involved. And sometimes I guess the imaging of what's underneath there is not always crystal clear. So like what, if it's not a tear, like what probably is it or what even is an ACL sprain and what are the recovery timelines like? So let's start with the word sprain. So sprain is used to describe a ligament injury. Any injury that you hear is a tear is a, a sprain. It's just a high grade sprain. So a grade one sprain is minimal damage to the ligament. A grade two is often referred to as a partial tear. So individual fibers of the ligament have actually been torn. And then grade three or grade four, depending on the joint involved, is generally a rupture or a complete tear. So we know that it was a ACL, well, we, we've heard that it's an ACL sprain. So hopefully that is a low grade sprain, which means surgery would not be necessarily needed. Now that would depend on the stability of the knee. So the ACL is within the joint. It connects your upper leg bone to your lower leg bones. If you take your middle finger, cross it over your, your pointer finger and put that on your knee, that middle finger, that's your ACL. The one behind it is your PCL. That's the, the pattern they do because they cross. And, and that helps with translation of your leg bones and whatnot. It's, it's stability for the knee. If that is sprained and it's mild and the overall integrity of the knee is not compromised, surgery would not be warranted. Now, granted, that does not happen very much. We've seen it a couple times in the NBA. Uh, Jay Crowder did it uh, when he was with with Boston, but we, we don't have a good timeline because he it, it occurred in a season-ending loss in the postseason. The only other example I have of a low-grade sprain in the NBA since 2005-2006 was Jared Jeffries, who suffered a low-grade sprain in the preseason and missed five games. I think it was roughly three weeks um, overall. And, and he came back and played. Now, he had previously torn the ACL, but this was a low-grade sprain the second time around. So the hope is, regardless of the swelling, that the sprain on Kawhi is low. It's a low-grade sprain. He'll avoid surgery and potentially could return depending on the associated symptoms and how they feel about the integrity of the knee. That was a very good answer. I feel educated. I also feel tired <laughs> now. So I'm going to let you guys go. I know you both have things to do. Baxter Holmes, you can read all his stuff on ESPN. Uh, thank you for joining us. And Jeff Stotts, just indispensable follow on Twitter, indispensable follow when you write, indispensable all around. Guys, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Woo! Last but certainly not least, we absolutely have to talk about the nightmare that unfolded in Philadelphia in Game 5 last night. Nightmare for the Sixers fans, at least. And joining us is one of the hosts of the Rights to Ricky Sanchez podcast, the podcast for Philadelphia 76ers fans. And we'd love to get both of them, but the other host lives in California. He's very busy. It's very hard to get everyone coordinated. Spike Eskin, how are you? Oh, man. What a night. What just a... Just never been prouder to be a Philadelphia 76ers podcaster than today. Just unbelievable. So um, when did you when did you think, uh, uh oh, they, they might lose? Like We were up by 26. We might lose. When did when did it dawn on you that it was a reality that was possible? It's hard to tell. So this thing happens when you watch. The way you watch the NBA and the way I watch are, are really different in that you watch everybody. I end up seeing everybody, but only through the lens of the Sixers and because we, we watched every game for you know eight, nine years, whatever it is, every minute. 
And what starts to happen is you start to get this little feeling in your stomach, good or bad. And you tend to sense things that maybe somebody else doesn't sense because you're watching every single minute. And I swear, I, I think it was the, even in the second quarter, something felt like unsafe. Now, when it really felt bad was the middle of the third. Like when, when they brought Embiid back in and it didn't, or was that even in the fourth? When they brought Embiid back in and it didn't solve the issue. They brought when, everybody back with like yep. nine and a half left in the game because it was Doc being like, all right, none of this is working. Everyone come back. Joel, everybody, everyone back. And there was, Joel had a couple of buckets and it looked like maybe it was going to be okay, but it didn't stop the Hawks from pushing. And when that happened, it just, you know, I was talking to Mike O'Connor who writes for us, good, good Sixers writer. And we were talking earlier in the series, I think it was, um, maybe it was game two and the Sixers started off really hot and we real, they had a great first quarter. And at the end of the first quarter, they only had 33 points. And it's this thing that happens with this team because they don't shoot a lot of threes. And even when Tobias Harris is cooking, it's only, you know, two points, two points, two points. And against like Atlanta, you always feel like this is possible because they just don't score enough points. And uh, I, I just, I've seen them lose games that they had leads in before. It's just like the the horror and the tightness that you could see in their faces last night. Like they looked genuinely shaken by the entire thing last night. Ben was obviously shaken. You could see it in Embiid. Embiid was nervous. I never see him tight, but he looked tight in the last five minutes of the game. Um, I wasn't even sure Tobias Harris had played until I saw the box score, <laughs> you know, like it, it was just, yeah. Four points, right? Four points. Uh, four points. Didn't shoot a free throw. Didn't shoot no a free throws. throw. I'll tell you, yeah. did shoot a lot of free throws. Ben Simmons and Trey Young, but especially Ben Simmons. So the the moment where I thought, uh oh, that this might actually be 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 a thing that's happening, was when John Collins banked in a three pointer to cut it to eight in the middle of the fourth quarter from the top of the arc as the shot clock was expiring. And, I, and there are all those little moments in games. Usually it's like an offensive rebound that sort of hits somebody in the face and then bounces right where you're like, mark that little bit of good fortune down. If this turns, that was the moment where I was like, I got to buckle up because this is about to get ugly. Um, so what annoyed you the most, the defense or the offense? Obviously, when you are scored 40 to 19 in the fourth quarter, both ends are just malfunctioning and going haywire. But when you're when you were getting your agita, what was or what, a day later, what concerned you the most? It's always been the offense. It's always been the offense because you just in the. It doesn't seem like in the NBA in 2021, you can be that even the effort that it takes to be as excellent defensively as you need to be, to be as, as average offensively as they are, just doesn't seem like you can keep it up. And, and yeah, I mean, you know, me I, and, and my frustration with the team and we were on, you know, with you few months back. And my worry has always been, and my concern has always been that in the playoffs, you need a player who you can give the ball to a guard usually, or, you know, a wing or something like that and say, get us a bucket or 
get yourself into the lane and get somebody else a bucket. And the Sixers don't have it. And I just can't think it in the history of the NBA, a, a team that won a title that didn't at least have one of those players and watching them like not able to create any reasonable shot for anyone throughout the fourth quarter without going to Embiid, because you know it gets harder to go through Embiid the longer the game goes on and the more it tightens up. It's just the offense was horrible, and and the offense in these situations was horrible. And on top of that, think about this, man. They were playing Lou Williams and Trey Young at the same time. Which I didn't think they would ever they, – they basically never did in the regular season, and I didn't think they would have the courage to do it. Even with Hunter hurt, even with Reddish hurt, even with Hill borderline unplayable, even with Snell getting a spot shifted, even with all that, I still didn't think they would do it. And the Sixers don't have anyone who can make them pay for it. They don't have anyone that can make them pay for it. And that obviously both those guys can score. Both those guys can create. Obviously, it's going to be hard to guard both those guys at once. But the Sixers didn't even make it difficult on them. And the fact that they couldn't, I mean, throughout the series, they haven't really been able to target Trey Young defensively. And for them to put Lou Williams and Trey Young in the same time, it's almost like an insult. It's almost like they're being teased or something, and they couldn't do it. To me, it's, it was the offense. The I know gall if, on you, Nate McMillan. The gall to put both of them out there in our faces. Yep. Yeah, to me it was the offense. Was it the same for you, or was it different? Well, it's funny because the defense, like it wasn't as good by their standards, obviously, as it was in particularly the first two and a half quarters. They were smothering, like they've been for much of the series and much of the season. And then you know, like Lou made some tough shots, and yeah, there were some mix-ups and coverages, but like he still made some tough shots. Gallo made some tough shots. Um, Trey got cooking at the end, but he's a great player. Like it, there were, it was, it was bothersome, but I, I chalked it up to. Some pretty good shot making from the Hawks, aided by mistakes. And and Bede looked tired um, at the end of the game, not challenging some shots around the rim that he would normally get to. But to me, the the defense, it all flows together, right? When they don't get stops, that's Mm -hmm. when Ben Simmons really becomes not quite as useful an offensive player because they can't get out in transition. And they all the ends flow together and they have to play a half court game on every single possession. And look. You and I talked about it with Mike. Like the Sixers have never been in my pick to come out of the East this year. Um, that doesn't mean I don't like the team. I, I'm kind of obsessed with the team. But um, the the reason is th- this game, this game was the embodiment of why that was for exactly the reasons you said. And the last eight minutes in particular was the embodiment of, of why that was. And look, let me let me just to so Sixers people aren't that angry. Like I, the, the team's really good. And let's just zoom out for a second before we go into death mode. Let's just zoom out for a second. You should still they, like they should still win the series. If they, if Embiid's healthy, they're the better team. They can go to Atlanta and win a game, and they have Game Seven at home. If they're able to do that, the Bucks. Do you trust the Bucks to cross the street right now? No. No. The Nets are a mash unit. The West is a complete mess. Like uh, not a complete mess. Like, the, like well, I mean, who knows what, what we'll have to see what happens with Chris Paul. Like. It's still there. It's there's a roadmap that's still there. So just like get it together. That's my opti- I just had to get the optimism out. Well, but the that's fair. But the road that roadmap is there for everybody, and the you except know for the Hawks. Well, except well, right. But I I guess my point is 
yeah, sure. There's the problem with the clip, you know, Kawhi is out and Utah is falling apart and Conley's hurt and, and Harden's hurt and Irving's hurt. But I could look at the Sixers and say, Hey, and beads playing on one leg and, you know, they're missing Danny Green and they still don't have a guard. So I think the best case scenario is you could go, well, the Sixers have like a 6% chance of winning the title, just like everybody else around there does, maybe a little bit less. But I think um, I think it's there for them. But that game last night looked like the sort of game that's very difficult to wash the stink off of. Like that That's my concern. You're just looking in their eyes. That's the way I felt. And we saw what we saw, really, when we're talking about, you know, the lack of a Jimmy Butler type, for instance, to use a name from the past. Um, I think we saw that there is a limit, even on a hot night, to how much you can ride Seth Curry. Like, Seth Curry's a really good player for what he is. The moment you start being like, hey, man, can we can we run pick and roll with you, like, it, every single time? Because that's all we got right now. Like at, the, at, at some point, that play is going to run into a wall and run out of gas. And they just didn't have anything left. Like, they just didn't, other than posting Embiid, which becomes more difficult when Simmons and Thibel are both on the floor because everyone's in the paint. Yeah. They just didn't have anything. Well, let me ask you this. So, Embiid's obviously been exceptional this year, arguably the best player in basketball. And one of the things that we've talked about has been the conditioning. That's what everybody's talked about. The thing that I, I try to... and he, he was not the same player in the fourth quarter last night as he was in the first half. And he, of course, had the bad second half in game four. Am I excuse making by saying that by the way he gets his points offensively and what he has to do defensively to carry the team on both sides makes it infinitely more difficult for him, even if he's in good condition, to be that sort of player in the fourth quarter when you compound it with how much more difficult it is to be his kind of player in a fourth quarter rather than a perimeter player. Am I making an excuse by saying he's going to get tired if he has to do that? You know, I, that's no, I think you're being realistic, particularly with a, a meniscus injury that he's playing through. And look, we've seen it even with Kawhi Leonard. Like you can't ask Kawhi Leonard to guard Luka Doncic and run the offense every single night. He's just, mm-hmm. it's, it's too hard. And Embiid, He's also like in this one of the stories of Embiid's career is that he's just made a ton of concessions in in how he plays. And some of it is his choice and some of it is not. But, you know, he's become a three point shooter to accommodate Simmons. I don't think he loves shooting threes. He's talked about how he doesn't love shooting threes. He never rolls hard to the rim because Ben Simmons is down there like he's had to reinvent his game because of 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 how their roster is constructed. But no, I, I don't I don't think it's excuse me again. Look, he, you just had to watch the game. He comes out in the first quarter last night, and he looks like he's on fire. Like he he looks like he's shot out of a cannon. They can't do anything with him. And then down the stretch, he looks a little bit mortal. Yeah, the it always comes back to Simmons. Unfortunately, I, I, it, I, it's unavoidable. Yeah, I. This is where I've I've ended up on him. Is that he? It is clear that he is a really good player. It's also clear that he could be a meaningful player on a really good team. What is finally clear to me, though, and has been clear to me for a while, is that he cannot be the point guard on a championship team. He just can't. There's just there's just nothing about the way that the NBA is nowadays, especially when your best player is a, a seven-foot, 300-pound center who 
you know, who will shoot threes for you and is a good three point shooter, but is certainly not, you know, Kristaps Porzingis that you want, or Brooke Lopez wants to hang around on the perimeter the whole time. And the, the thing that is frustrating to me is the insistence from everyone, from Ben to Doc Rivers, that everybody else is crazy, that everybody else is crazy. And they're, even as far as announcing him as point guard, right? Like even as far as is saying he is the point guard has prevented them from obtaining, from being in a position where now they either have to trade Ben to get James Harden, they have to mortgage their future to get Kyle Lowry. I, I mean, they they tried to trade for two point guards this year and yeah. they traded for a third one. So I just think that they've put themselves in a position where they have to hedge one of their starters with another starter just because they've decided that Ben Simmons has to be a starting point guard. And it's just, I, I don't think this was anything that Daryl could have fixed as quickly as he got in here. He did, I guess he tried with Harden, but it, it just comes down to, I, I can't imagine another player, another point guard in the playoffs being taken off the floor in closing minutes in important offensive possessions for a like a playoff team. It's just, it it's absolutely insane. And they're now in this insane situation because of that. He used to, um, like Brett Brown actually made some hay having him like set flare screens and do things like when he doesn't have, like to, when you don't have the ball, you've got to do something. Now when he doesn't have the ball, he just does nothing. And he just stands down by the hoop. And I understand, like, you stand down there, it's not a valueless thing. Like, you can get offensive rebounds and putbacks. He's a threat to get little dump-off passes. But it's really hard in the NBA now, as you said. If your role in offense is to stand, it's really hard when you stand near the rim. It's usually you have to stand around the arc for for spacing. And, look, I voted Ben Simmons third-team All-NBA last season. Like, don't I don't want to hear about how I'm mean to Ben Simmons and I hate Ben Simmons. He was on my All-NBA team last season. He's a really good player. I voted him a third defensive player of the year this year, even though I don't, you know, Embiid is a better defender than he is. It was just a matter of, of games played. If you just, if you are still in the, well, why don't we talk about all the good things he does camp? We do. We talk about that stuff all the time. Even in saying, why don't we talk about all the good things he does? You're talking about all the good things he does indirectly. You just, it's sitting, it's staring you in the face. The playoffs are like this every year. The Boston series is like this. The, the Toronto series, he had four games of 10 points or less. This series has been even worse. It's it's every time. And I don't know. I don't know what. You know how many pick and rolls he ran last night as the ball handler? I'm sure zero, right? One. Two. 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 There you the go. lowest amount of the entire season for well, Ben Simmons last night. When you watch, just watch from the start of the game, Collins has already decided, I'm giving you 15 feet. Like it's the very first possession that Sixers had Ben Simmons was standing outside of the three point line with the ball and John Collins was in the lane guarding. Yeah, They him. were making, they were making an Embiid sandwich between yeah. Collins and Capella. I remember that, it vividly. All that, all that does is make life harder on Embiid. And the fact that the fact that he won't see that space, he gets compared to Rondo a lot, but Rondo would see that space and use it. That's not what Ben does. Ben's Ben is not that sort of player. And when you talk about, well, let's talk about the good things he does. It's almost like if I said my starting center is Chris Paul and say, look at this. Look at all he does as a starting center. He's an incredible ball handler. He's an incredible passer. He's got a crazy mid-range game. He's a great spot-up three-point shooter. And you eventually somebody would go, 
right, but he's the center and the center has to like block shots and patrol the lane and, you know, and set screens. And you're like, you're, you're missing the point. Chris Paul is a revolutionary center who doesn't do any of the things that you need a center to do, but he does all these other things that the other position plays. And I, I, I just don't think now we're at a point where it is more important what he doesn't do than what he does do for the position he plays. It's just more important. It's preventing them from winning. Uh, and it, it was a, a big part of last night, in addition to the, the free throw thing, which is he's never really gotten any better, but he's obviously shaken mentally on the free throw thing, which has made it all worse. Yeah, the free throw thing, I mean, there's no artful way to talk about that. It's 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 like when Kawhi Leonard gets hurt, everyone wants to take. Well, to take is it's bad. It's bad for the Clippers. Like the free the free throw thing is a disaster. I mean, it's a, it's a he's 20 uh, he's shooting 32% from the line and they're having to take him off the floor because the 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 Hawks are wasting fouls on him. It's it's just a disaster. There's just no other there's just no other way to say it. And look, this is why one of the reasons they, they just can't afford an even mediocre to bad defensive game because they can't get out in transition if they're not getting stops. And if they can't get out in transition, he becomes, if not a liability on offense, and certainly on some nights he is, a, a, a just sort of there. And, and you know, he used to also, like the, this, you mentioned the space he, he gets. He used to really cut a lot too. Like you would see him get, when they would pop Joel to, to the three line, and he would catch a pass like Simmons defender would shade over there and he would like zoom diagonally to the rim and get dunks and land. we don't even really see a bunch of that anymore. It's like some of the, the verve in his game has kind of been sapped and they've got to find a way to get it back. And, and, you know, there are ways to do that. Like Seth Curry back screens for lots of people have been good for the Sixers in this series, but they've just got to find a way And the easiest ways to get stops. But even beyond that, they've just got to find a way to get, get some juice back. Yeah. I, they don't have a lot of time. To figure it out. It's your point. They win on Friday. Maybe, maybe, maybe this game becomes the, you know, the spark that energizes them and brings them together. They wouldn't be. It wouldn't be the first time that a favored team got behind in a series, came back and won, uh, even when it when it looked terrible. It wouldn't be the first time. It just. I just wonder who's going to be. What is going to be the impetus? For that, like who is going to be the player on the team that makes that happen? And as much as I want it to be Embiid, I just, I just, I just don't know. I mean, that was a, that was as pathetic a showing from the Sixers. And I, you know, watched some bad Sixers teams over the last decade, but that was as bad a showing as I've seen. What's, what's the solution to the bench problem? Because the bench mob is unplayable. And the Tobias plus bench mob lineup, which was successful in the regular season, mostly because of defense, has fallen on its face in this series for the most part. Like, what what's what are some ideas to shake that up? I always I've been a Brett Brown defender long, 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 and I I always every time that somebody would criticize Brown's rotations, I would say, well, if you don't want that guy in, a different guy has to go in, and chances are. The, the, like that's a worse option. So there's the problem. And a lot, a lot has been made of, of Doc's bench lineups, all bench lineups. He's very committed to them. They're bad. But even last night when it was bench plus Tobias Harris, that was bad too. And the problem that he faces is that it seems like the bench, he can't depend on anybody all the time. So he just plays enough of them to see if one of them will pop 
and is able to carry the offense, whether it's Shake Milton for a little bit, maybe George Hill gets a good run, maybe it's Maxi, maybe Corkmaz gets hot and is able hot and is able to carry it. Doc's problem is is that normally, or on a championship level team, you would hope that there is another player. There's two players that could carry, you know, a mostly bench lineup. You have two starters that could do it, and the Sixers only have one. I, I so when that's when that's the issue, when it can't be Simmons. Because Simmons can't really play with Thibault and can't really play with Dwight Howard particularly effectively. And it we saw what happened when it's Tobias Harris. Then it's just Embiid. What are you playing Embiid for 48 minutes? It's like your only solution. I I don't know. In my head, I could look at a lineup with Ben, George Hill, uh, you know, Furkan Korkmaz, Shake Milton, and and I don't know. Uh, well, Danny Green, Dan, Danny not Green being Dwight hurt. Howard. Not yeah, Howard. not Dwight Simmons, Howard. Simmons at center, basically. Right, but it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. He he defensively he gets compared to Draymond Green a lot in in his best. People say he should be like a, a Draymond type player. Well, Draymond's a lot stronger than Ben is, and Draymond is a lot better of a rim protector than Ben is. And Draymond can legitimately play center when you need him to in the playoffs effectively defensively and Simmons can't. So I don't know. I mean, what do you think the solution is? I, I don't, I don't see a solution with the bench lineup. I think that might be worth a try as long as the problem is offense, which it is. And as long as the Hawks right. are not putting size out there, that really frightens you. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's not a great rim attacking group that they have. Although Okongwu last night was a game changer for them. The minutes he gave them, I, I think that might be worth trying to look, but you're right. I mean, the issue is really, the Simmons Howard combination being toxic because, you know, you want to say, well, couldn't they bring, like, maybe they should even get really desperate and try bringing him beat out like a couple minutes earlier so he can play with the second unit. But yeah. then you're playing Dwight with Swin- Dwight with Simmons, or you're just not playing Dwight, but you're playing Dwight with Simmons. Um, and, and so then you say, well, maybe they can bring Simmons back in earlier, really stable. Then, then you're playing Simmons and Dwight and maybe you're playing Simmons, Harris and Dwight, which has been the worst trio on the entire team and plus minus all year. I just, it, maybe it's just Seth Curry. Can you extend Seth Curry even more? Just that roving shooting presence he brings. I, I don't know that there's a great answer, but I know the Simmons at center thing has not been super successful and does not work in real life as well as it works on paper. I think in this series, against a, a kind of small and finessey Hawks lineup, it might be worth a try. Or, you know, but you know what? You say this, if Tobias Harris makes three floaters on the pick and roll, that's all you need. You survive based on those shots. Right. Well, I also wonder, given how Simmons is playing right now, even if you put him with four players who are capable of shooting and surround him with that, what's he going to do with it? Right? Like what? what, what is in, in our, in our mind, he is attacking this open middle of the court and kicking it out to guys who can shoot, but he's been resistant to that. His offensive game has really become, he gets the ball, he tries to beat the defense back and get an open dunk. If that's not there, he hands the ball off to Seth Curry and he stands by the hoop. So it's worth a try. I mean, but every time they've tried it, it hasn't really, hasn't really worked. You know, you mentioned, you mentioned Harden. They definitely tried to trade Simmons for Harden. They definitely, yeah. they def- that was the thing that happened. Yep. Um, and Houston said no. Do you, I, I would think, and I'm guessing you agree, if they lose this series, I think they have no choice but to explore Simmons' trades at this point, right? 
oh, I don't think that there's any way he'd be on the team next year if they lose this. I, I, I don't know how else they, I don't know how else they fix it by trading, except for trading him. He's, he would be the most valuable thing they would have to trade. Maybe the, the tricky part is, is that I think his value is probably very tricky and specific and very high to maybe someone, but maybe that someone doesn't have what you need. And then it gets complicated because I, I really don't think a lot, a lot of people talk about Houston making an error trading for what they traded for instead of Simmons. I think you could pick apart little things like, why didn't they just keep Jared Allen? Why didn't they keep Karis LeVert? But I, when I look at the package of it, if I want to rebuild, I, I don't know, is having John Wall and Ben Simmons taking up $80 million of cap room? Is that how I want to... We're seeing what it, last night in this series is one of the reasons why. Just in case we ever get good again in the next five or six years, are, are we sure that this could be a crunch time offense guy? But I, look, look at the Nets. Harden's hurt with hamstring issues, right? And there's been rumblings about his, you know, off-court whatever for a long time now as he ages. Durant and Kyrie have both been hurt this year. I mean, that's what Houston is betting on, really, that this team falls apart in four years. And I, I actually thought they did pretty well in that trade, to be honest. Well, they got the most possible draft compensation they could have gotten from another team if you're just talking about that team's draft compensation, right? And for it, essentially, it was down to two teams. So I, I thought they did pretty well. I, I definitely think they would trade Simmons. And I definitely think he's the most valuable thing to trade. But I guess I just don't know what the trade is. And if anyone's going to find it, Daryl Morey will will attempt to find it. But I don't know. He's a, he's a tricky thing. To, he's a tricky thing to trade, especially if if they if they get their asses kicked on Friday night and Ben Simmons goes one of six from the line. I, I, if I was a general manager, I maybe I'd still be willing to trade for Ben Simmons. But I definitely think about it more than I thought about it sixty days ago. I have news for Philly fans. The GMs of the other teams watch the playoffs <laughs> yeah. very, very closely. <laughs> right, right. And there are definitely teams that I have talked to in the last 48 hours who were once in on Simmons who say, at least to me, could be posturing, and eh, we're a little less in than, than we used to be. Some of the rebuilding teams have already, you know, they're so deep in a rebuild it doesn't make sense for them. Some teams have pivoted from their vision already. I mean, here's the thing. Like, in the past, when we've done these fake Simmons trades, it's been like, what about Simmons for Devin Booker? Well, Philly wouldn't do that, or Phoenix wouldn't do that, or whoever would. Simmons for Donovan Mitchell. Like, those are off the board. Like, it's just, that that's yeah. over. Um, Beal was the thing that everyone pivoted to after this, after the Harden thing fell off. I mean, Washington needs, Washington, Tommy Shepard's watching these games. I, you know, and I, I think the problem you're going to run into is, if you have Joel Embiid, you have to win now, today. You can't you can't trade for the thing that the Rockets got for Harden. You've got to get someone who helps me win right now. And if it's not an all-star caliber player, Joel Embiid's looking around being like, what the hell did you just do? And right. so you, we, we can go through the other. Do you want me to go through some fake names just for fun? Sure, sure, sure. Let me be clear. These are fake trades. I just made them up out of whole cloth. This is based on nothing, no insight, no sources. Nothing. This is what the internet is for. The internet is for made up prospective trades to talk about. That's there's nothing more fun in sports than made up trades. CJ McCollum. 
I was on a I was on a station in Portland this morning, and they they asked me, and I said, "Well, what about the other guy?" And they both <laughs> laughed at me. Uh, that that's the range we're talking about, right? That that's the layer, level of player I think they could hope for. Um, you know, I he would certainly make them a better offensive team. I think he would certainly fit really really well with Embiid. I think there would have to be another move because I don't think that you start him and Seth Curry in the same backcourt. You're just at, Seth Curry's been obliterated defensively in this Hawks series. I don't think you can start McCollum and and Seth, but I think that's a name you have to consider. I know Sixers fans will be disappointed because even a week ago they were talking about Lillard and now we're talking about McCollum, but I, I think you have to consider it. I I mean look Lillard only becomes in play if he demands a trade out of mm-hmm. Portland and the market is dried up and you add a lot of stuff to Ben Simmons. And, and then then that becomes something at least you have to have a meeting about it for the Blazers. I'm not even I don't know even know how realistic that is. And it's, it's been mentioned before, but not really for Simmons. But uh, Zach Levine. Oh, well, I'm a big Zach Levine. Guy. I would do that in a second. I now, I don't think I'm not sure Chicago would do it. I'm not what, sure Chicago. Why would, do it. why would they? I <laughs> Right? Why would they do it? I, th- that's you can what at I... least talk yourself into like we have a perimeter shooting center, so yeah. that, like he he doesn't. Although Vooch pulls set up a lot for them, so I I don't. They they would do it because they see the Levine extension looming, mm-hmm. and they're like, ooh, I, I, he hasn't. We've ever really ever won with him, uh, uh, but but I don't. I I, I don't know. Well, we might have a different view of Zach Levine's career if he played with Joel Embiid. Yeah, the the we never really won with him question may may dry up relatively quickly if they if he's playing with the the best center in the league. We I would not, do it. To, to your point, and to the point about the Lillard conversation, we are not even like eighteen months removed, maybe two years removed from. If you just had all twenty nine teams and said, "What's your best offer?" Simmons had as much trade value as Embiid because of the health concerns about Embiid and because of the, all that stuff. And now it's like it's it's obviously Embiid is arguably the MVP of the league. Um, this one is going to hurt you. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. Gordon Hayward and some stuff from the Hornets. Oh, man. One one trade I always used to uh, tell KOC when the Sixers had Horford was I was like, can we just swap Horford and Hayward? Can we do that? Everybody will be happy. And I think if if Hayward's healthy, Hayward's helps them more. I think it makes them better. His his health over the last few years, I just man, him and Embiid, uh, do they ever play a game together <laughs> if if they're if they're on the same team? I think that would be pretty depressing for Sixers fans for it to be Hayward, right? It would be He's a depressing. good player, but that would be pretty depressing. I'll tell you a team that's got a lot of moving pieces this offseason is the Pacers. Like yeah. Malcolm Brogdon plus a lot of other stuff, does that do anything for you? Yeah, I think Brogdon's a player we've talked about, is hurt a lot as well, but I guess you, know, you take what you can get. I don't know that Brogdon is a type of player who at the end of the game um, – super thrilled about putting it in his hands. He's pretty good, but he's not, I'd feel much better about CJ McCollum or Zach Levine than Brogdon. But, uh, I think Brogdon's a, you know, a good play. They do have a lot going on there. Would you give me Brogdon and, uh, Levert? 
Was Levert, is he up? I, 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 I might just for, I don't, but then Simmons and Sabonis is like, it just doesn't, it's, doesn't it's not awesome. Yeah. Um, this one, this one made me wince a little bit. I'm only half serious about it. D'Angelo Russell and Malik no, Beasley. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> no. I'm, I'm, I've been our, I know. I know. And, Andrew Sharp's a big D'Angelo Russell guy. And even during his good season, I kept telling Sharp, he sucks, dude. I'm telling you, he sucks. There's no way that's real. I can't do D'Angelo Russell. I can't. The I can't. funniest one would be Ingram just because of the draft class. But um, since it's in Zion, you just can't. You just, it's not going to. They're just going to be bowling balls running running into each other. If the it's, Sixers traded for Ingram, Mike Levin would have to swallow a lot of his Ingram slander over the last several years a lot a lot a lot they're just i i just think honestly they might either what well, look the series isn't over obviously i just think if they ever get to this bridge it, they might almost be better off waiting for the landscape of the league to change in some yeah. way that that and for for simmons's game to pop a little bit but look spike it's only three two this is why i have home court advantage mm-hmm. you only gotta for win sure. a road game win one yep. road game and everything looks rosy but that last night was what a week in the nba just, oh my goodness! Just unbelievable. Yeah. Last night was all the news happens all day long. You're on the phone, blah blah blah, blah and you're like, "Oh, finally, I get to calm down and watch some games." And the games are like as crazy as the news, both of them. Yeah, I I woke up to the Paul George game. You know, I I, I went to sleep after we did the podcast last night, just sure that the Clippers had lost. There was no doubt in my mind that the Clippers had lost. That is that is crazy. I I just. I know they can win game six. I just, I don't know. I, I can't shake this, the feeling of game five off of me. It just, Hawks go up 10-2 in game six. That game's over. <laughs> I mean, that's why the, that's what we thought when it was 30-11 Mavs. Uh, yeah, that's a good point. Three. That's um, a good point. Against the Clippers. Look, uh, that's why these next two nights are so fascinating. The Nets and the Bucks tip off in four hours or so, and the Bucks have to watch that loss off. And yeah. then tomorrow night, yeah, the Sixers have to watch that loss off. All right, Spike, uh, the rights to Ricky Sanchez. It, you've made fun of me a lot of times, and I still listen to it. That's that's the ultimate. That's the ultimate compliment. And uh, and uh, and I'll tell you this: after this week, I might have more than one beer on on one one day. When when this round is over, I might have a couple of beers. Oh my goodness. Two beers. Two beers. beers. Crazy. Spike asking, hey, congrats on the new job at WFAN as well. Uh, that I grew up a WFAN listener. Uh, that place is like a temple of, of awesomeness, and, and uh, you're going to do great. Thank you, man. We'll have to bring you in. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA.